This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Deborah Henley. She has over 20 years in psychology and personal development. Formerly a competitive oarswoman, sailor and swimmer with qualifications in neurolinguistics, hypnotherapy and the expressive arts. She draws on some extraordinary life experiences keen commercial sensibility and a quirky and creative perspective on life. Her book, Your Leadership Story, was shortlisted in the Business Book Awards and has become a transformational program for speakers to find their message and story. Working with global blue chips such as Amex, Microsoft and the MOD, she inspires her audiences to bring the life and soul back into their organizations. Her vision is to equip leaders to create cultures in which everyone can shine, even or especially when they feel perfectly flawed. You can't break water. Um, and in the same way, you know, in our essence, there's, there's something about us, our soul, that can't be broken, our essential self. And yet on the surface, we may feel those cracks and those pinches and, you know, the discomfort. And that can happen all the time. And I did get quite early on that things are not that simple. You know, I did understand that she hadn't been happy with the life that she was leading. But that just compounded the whole sense that I didn't really matter. My soul didn't matter. Who I was inside didn't matter. What mattered was this. Just the exterior. The exterior and particularly, you know, how that was an object for men to do with what they wanted they had these sort of predatory urges and um, that was just the way they were don't trust any men that's what they're all like and that's why I want to share that because I think it's a very common experience isn't it for people who have undergone rape the, the sense that they didn't stick up for themselves because I'm and, sure if you spoke to somebody else who was seven or who was 20 what would you say to them so welcome to the show, Deborah. How are you doing today? Very well. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Ah, it's lovely to have you here. So because the show is called Unbroken, we always start with the first question, which is, what does the word unbroken mean to you? Well, when I think of unbroken, I think of the soul, which I think of as a little bit like water. It doesn't matter how you stretch it or bend it or twist it or contort it. You can't break water um, and in the same way you know in our essence there's there's something about us our soul that can't be broken our essential self and yet on the surface we may feel those cracks and those pinches and you know the discomfort and that can happen all the time essentially we're never broken I, I love the connection with water. No one out of all of my so far 114 episodes has ever mentioned water but when you think of water it is always flowing. It can get blocked sometimes and maybe it flows a bit too fast, but actually there's always a drip, drip, drip. So we're always going forward. So yeah, mm. beautiful. So you talk about that you base a lot on your extraordinary life experiences. And I know you had an unusual one when you were about 11 because your mum left. Most people think about father leaving the family home, but can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yes, well, I grew up in Hong Kong. We were expats in Hong Kong. And um, the lifestyle in Hong Kong was very um, sort of fast paced, you know, buildings, very tall buildings would go up and come down and people were always sort of moving forward. And I think the lifestyle was quite a, a shallow one. And I remember my mum used to say I would give anything to just be back in England with a mug of tea with my friends having a good old chat around the kitchen table. Um, in the end, she um, she left the she left my father. Um, you know, their marriage wasn't working out. She had had an affair. She was having an affair, and then she um, left and went to England. And I was sort of left managing my father, who was absolutely heartbroken. Um, you were just an only child, or you had brothers or sisters? I had a brother, a younger brother, who'd who'd gone to um, a boarding school kind of at around the same time in England, a nine-year-old, <laughs> which in itself is quite a thing. And then my younger sister, um, who was, I think, four or, yeah, four at the time, went with my mother. I thought at the time that she had, you know, left the family. But it's interesting how, as a child, I didn't think about her leaving me. I thought she had left my father, who was devastated. So my feelings were put on hold. It was all about making sure he felt okay. You know, that was all I was concerned about my, you know, because it's, it's, it was terrifying and devastating to see my father cry at this big, strong man, you know, be torn apart. So I really, my life became about just making sure that he was happy. So you took on that, that duty to look after your father, but actually when you look back now, she left both of you really, didn't she? Well, in many ways she did. And it wasn't until I was 35 that I actually discovered what had happened was she had come to the UK with a plan to set up home with this man that she'd been having an affair with when she got and then bring the children over and, and sort of start a new family. I mean, rightly or wrongly, that was her intention. I didn't realise it was at the time. And um, when she got to the UK, there was a note from him saying, sorry, I couldn't go through with it. I couldn't leave my wife. Oh dear. So my father wouldn't have her back. Um, and my mother was sort of left in England, sort of with a very angry daughter who didn't really want to have much to do with her. That was me. Um, and, um, you know, sort of creating a, a new life for herself. But I know that you're a therapist as well. So we often know that anger covers up a lot of hurt and disappointment really doesn't it so sometimes it's easier to be angry isn't it rather than actually get to the hurt of what's really happened mm. although I, th I think my anger was sort of frustrated because whenever I saw her I really wanted to be angry with her I had so much sort of pent-up anger and whenever I did she would sort of collapse in a corner <laughs> and she wouldn't be able to take it and she'd say you don't understand it and of course like like anyone I felt quite conflicted because I did love my mother you know, I love my mother and I love my father. And I and I did get quite early on that things are not that simple. You know, I did understand that she hadn't been happy with the life that she was leading. Mm -hmm. um, my father was very busy with his work and his own activities. And my mother was very much there in a um, traditionally sort of female uh, role, you know, looking after the children and not really having a life of her own. She was quite an adventurous spirit. So um, I, it, I think the main thing that it set me up as doing was <laughs> I became a therapist because 
my first client was my father really yeah which is not really what you want <laughs> as a client it's, it's very different to do therapy with a family member than it is to do uh therapy with clients really isn't it yes and it took me years and years to get out of that uh cycle of um it's much easier to help solve other people's problems. I think it's something a lot of therapists can relate to probably, yeah. but it's easier to look at other people's problems and help them than to help my own. But I think yeah. well, everyone is really good at giving other people advice, but they maybe don't necessarily follow that advice for themselves. And what you need to do is, and you think, well, that's not really what you're doing. So uh, <laughs> exactly. a lot of people do that. But your dad then met a new wife, didn't he? He got remarried. And what happened to you when you were about 16? So yes, when I was 16, he he met someone. He'd moved back to England um, probably in, when I was 15 and uh, he met her. And um, I thought at first, wow, this is wonderful. I can, I can relax, you know, and, and it really was a weight off my shoulders. I thought there's an adult who can sort of look after him. And were you still living with him in England when he moved back? Uh, yes, I was. I, I had also gone to a number of boarding schools. I, I mean, I went to um eight different schools by the time I was 18 and um, we lived in 12 or 13 different houses and homes you know between the two and I did shuttle back and forth a little bit between my mother it took me a long time to forgive her she met and remarried somebody else as well but we're now actually very good friends but as far as far as my father went that was my main home so when my stepmother came I I welcomed her with open arms but it was a difficult relationship and it still is um you know it it was difficult to find a way I suppose of playing daughter by now I looked like an a grown up a grown woman you know 16 17 I was tall and sort of developed and probably in her eyes I was fully developed not the um the the child who you know had sort of fallen apart in many ways and didn't really know my own self or have my needs met or have my emotions yes so she's just looking at the physicality but the emotional body doesn't sound like that was matured or that was developed in fact it was quite scarred really by what had happened yes I think at the age of 11 I um I I always felt that that's when my childhood ended and uh I sort of get got frozen in time there that's quite a statement, isn't it? My my childhood ended at eleven, mm. when you had to you had no choice but to become the adult. Yes, yes, and I, you know, and I think it's I wouldn't, um, I don't put any blame or or have any anger, say, to anyone really for the how the situation uh, worked out. I think everybody just thought that they they were living their lives in the right way. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a great deal of insight and understanding into how people were um, emotionally affected, how, how us as children were. I mean, prior to that, I had had another incident, um, did, which was when I was uh, seven, we went on holiday to Kashmir, which sounds sort of very glamorous, but it was very sort of strange. We were staying on a houseboat and um, one of the workers on, on a nearby houseboat um, started talking to me and invited me onto the houseboat and um, took me off into the bathroom and he had he raped me um, he wasn't uh, violent and it wasn't um, he wasn't able to you know go 
very far in that, but it was it was enough um, for me to sort of, he said to me, don't tell anyone. And I, I went straight back home and told my mother. And how did your mother receive that? How was she? She she just tried to console me. I felt very dirty and I just wanted to have a bath and just get clean, you know, and she sort of just helped sort of bathe me and, and clean me up. Um, and then I had to identify this man. All the workers were sat around a room and I had to go around and shake hands with every man and I could see this man second from the end. And I had to identify him. And this was for the police or your parents asked you to identify him? Uh, the the person running the, um, the sort of all the houseboats, I think. And I, and I think he went, uh, I, I don't really know what happened. I, I asked afterwards what happened to the nasty man, as he was called, what happened to the nasty man. And, um, and my father said he went to prison. And I was sort of horrified. Wow, going to prison. I'd never met anyone. You know, I hadn't really computed that it was a, a criminal thing. I hadn't met anyone who'd been to prison. And it just seemed, I was sort of quite shocked. Everything there was very strange anyway. Well, it's, I think, well, you can tell me if this is right, but at seven, it's hard to have the language to know what was done. Would you have known the word rape? Would you have, yes, you had the normal reaction of this was dirty and you were violated and you wanted to scrub it off, which I understand completely, but to know the actual meaning of what he did to you, how, how did your seven-year-old mind cope with that? Well, this is, this is why, I, I mean, I do remember um, sort of popping out of my body and having a, a view, um, dissociating and looking down um, at the situation. And... Um, I just sort of described what happened and my, you know, my mother sort of listened to me. And then it wasn't really spoken about again. Um, but it was because everything was so strange. We were in a, diff a very different country. We were staying on a houseboat. That was odd in itself to be on a boat. And I remember there was a chicken that had been... Um, had its head chopped off and was running around, you know, literally a, a headless chicken. So there are a lot of odd things going on. Um, but when you returned back home to Hong Kong, were you offered support or counselling in any way, or they just that was it? It happened and it was never spoken about. And it was, yeah, it was, you know, let, don't don't talk about it again. You know, that was the uh, the message so I got. Seven-year-old Deborah was never supported then, in that traumatic time of your life. Hmm. No. And what was the impact of that? So I think what it, first of all, the message I got from my father was don't trust any men. And I said, well, what, not even my uncles? And he said, oh, well, no, you can trust your uncles. Um, and it did mean that I was very afraid of anything to do with um, sexuality or um male, you know, a sort of male gaze of appreciation and, you know, that sort of thing. And I did hear even from my uncles and my father, you know, sort of comments around, uh, you know, attractive women <laughs> in the street or that sort of thing. And it would, it would always sit very uncomfortably. And I think what happened was that compounded with the fact that I had been busy looking after another's needs, my father's needs growing up meant that I didn't feel I had a right to stand up for my own needs and my own boundaries. You know, they didn't count. Mm -hmm. 
And so you so, were at the bottom of the list. Everyone else was before you. Yes, not that I was an incredibly giving, caring child. I wouldn't. No, I was very spirited and very energetic and outgoing. And I and I did love sport. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved. I had in Hong Kong growing up. I'd competed at swimming, and I'd done. You know, when I was older at school, I did a lot of rowing. So I was doing things physically in my body, and I was quite. Um, I was I was depicted as a bit of a wild child, I suppose. So it wasn't as though I was, you know, a, a, an incredibly people pleasing person, but I didn't think I mattered very much. Um, and so when I was 20, I was at a wedding and um, I, I had been asked to do some modeling. And the agent who ran the modeling agency had a a wedding and she invited some of the models so I didn't really know her that well um, and I felt a little bit as though I was there again sort of for how I looked for what I you know for, for what I was you know rather than the human being I was under the surface and but that just compounded the whole sense that I didn't really matter my soul didn't matter who I was inside didn't matter what mattered was this sort of, the exterior the exterior and particularly you know, how that was an object for men to do with what they wanted. They had these sort of predatory urges and um, that was just the way they were. Don't trust any men. That's what they're all like. Um, and so when I went, I I was in my, um, you know, I think early on at university and I, I wasn't interested in a lot of the boys and I'd probably send out signals to say I wasn't interested and they would call me frigid you know why aren't you sort of putting out why are you so frigid and so when I went to this wedding um I was dancing with somebody and we went outside and he started trying to you know he started kissing me and at first I thought well, I don't want to kiss him and then I thought well I better because I'm you know frigid I should be putting out so I did and it went further and further and he ended up raping me The next day I went to see a counsellor at the university. Actually, I didn't go to see a counsellor. I went to the nurse because I wanted a morning after pill. I'm still in absolute denial that this really mattered. I wouldn't, again, wouldn't really have said rape. He just had his way with me and I gave absolutely no indication that I had any uh, interest in what was going on or that I wanted it, you know. So there was no consent. So it was without a doubt rape, but you didn't ever label it that at the time. No, and I I made it as clear as I could, but I also felt ashamed that I didn't physically fight, even though this person was an athlete um, himself. Um, you know, he was quite a big, strong Actually, guy. just saying no should be enough. You shouldn't have to physically fight someone to say, I'm not interested. But from where I was at that point, yeah. I felt I didn't, you know, clearly I I should have made it clearer. I should have... So you're blaming yourself. Yes. Yeah. Um, And because I didn't do any of that, I thought, well, I must have, you know, I must have gone along with it. This must be all part of the problem I have, you know, my problem. Um, So when I went to see the nurse the morning after pill and explained what happened, I I started crying, but it was almost like my body was crying. I, I had 
sort of frozen off from it. Maybe my my soul for that moment was frozen. We talk about the soul being water. Maybe, yes. you know, there was a frozenness, but my body was reacting and crying. And um, and the nurse said, would you like to see a counsellor? I went, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, and then I had to go and race. Um, I was rowing and I just didn't have any energy. My My body was weak. I couldn't find anything in it to to just do my race um and I told my um somebody who'd been supporting me sort of coaching me a bit and his response he he was from quite a rough background and he said tell me who it is and I'm going to go and break his arms that's quite, that's quite a usual response that I get as well you know if it was me they wouldn't be alive now and like, yes it's quite a a macho response, but yeah, I, I understand yeah. why men do say that, but uh, yeah, it's quite a normal response. Well, so then I said, no, 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 no. And I protected his identity so that, you know, it wasn't going to go any further. So it was never reported, you know, I, I, you know, I could, I could probably find him now, but at the time I never reported him or, or wanted to push because I just, you know, I didn't want those sorts of things to start happening and for me to be responsible. But I think more importantly, I didn't value my own boundaries and I didn't know that I mattered. And I actually, later on, I, uh, as he was leaving, um, he, it was in my car, he was in my car with me and there was some modeling photos and I gave him one and said, look, now you can tell everyone you fucked a model. And I sort of wondered why, you know, at the time I sort of wonder why I said that, but it was just because I, it was almost like my way of saying. I'm not frigid and here you are. And, and you know, it was my way of retaliating, you know. It, it's, it's hard when I listen to you because you almost really have to be careful about not blaming yourself. I hear what you say that, you know, I wasn't learning to um, have boundaries, but those boundaries weren't broken by you. Those boundaries were broken, broken by him. You clearly said no, you didn't have to fight him off, that's not how it works. But still, even now, today, I hear you say, I should have been clear with my boundaries, which, which doesn't sit right with me. No, I, and, and, I, and that's why I want to share that, because I think it's a very common experience, isn't it, for people who have undergone rape, the, the sense that they didn't stick up for themselves. Because I'm and, sure if you spoke to somebody else who was seven, or who was 20, what would you say to them? Absolutely. No, I, I, I absolutely uh, would, you know, from, from, from the outside. And it from goes in... back to what we said at the start. So we're great at giving advice to others, but when it comes to ourselves, we beat ourselves up with the biggest stick possible. Hmm. And I think the damage was done, obviously, at the age of seven, so that by the time it happened when I was 19 or 20, you know, that there, was, that there wasn't really a sense that I could say no these are sort of men's um demands and uh, that's what they needed to do so that I mean there was a lot of work to be done um on me when I emerged <laughs> um quite scattered from university mm-hmm. I really didn't know who I was where I fit in what I was about where I belonged and certainly you know did I matter there was you know there was no no real meaning in my life or purpose and and the only thing I could do was say right I'm going to uh, row I'm going to do as well as I can with my rowing and I threw everything into my so that gave you a focus 
yeah put your energy into rowing and that worked for a while but we can't be an oarswoman forever so how did you pick up the other pieces and put them back together well a pivotal time came I, for five years I um I was sort of on this rowing uh, you know agenda and all my friends in the rowing world and I had a, a very nice boyfriend who was also um it was an olympic oarsman so you know i was in this um environment where that's what it was all about and then he went off with somebody else and my world fell apart because i think he had been the kind of center point i used to think of it like one of remember all, um, those little magnet games where there are lots of little filings and they all sit on that magnet you take the magnet away they're just lo- scattered filings and i felt like that i was just Scattered. So he grounded you at that point. Yes, and he pulled me together. And so it's learning to ground ourselves, really, isn't it, without the need of someone else to become a really good self-supporter. That is the trick. So how did you do that, or are you still learning to do that? Well, I was 25 when this happened, and I, I saw a... Um, I found, because it was five years after this incident, so I, um, I took a one-way ticket to Australia and um, just what completely tried to change my life. Um, and I went to Fiji on the way and lived and worked on a boat, a sailing boat. And um, it was lovely in Fiji. And while I was there, I found a book called Finding Peace in Your Heart. Mm-hmm. And I saw the cover and I thought, wow, imagine having peace in your heart. My heart felt empty. <laughs> it that's, felt like that's a- such a painful statement isn't it my heart felt empty it's like it's talk about the water like it had been frozen Mm, mm. it was it was inside my heart it felt as though there was just a a naked little child sort of quivering in a corner and you know I did need to learn to love myself Uh, but it was wonderful to read that book it, it began a whole new way of seeing the world and seeing life and, and seeing the human condition and I suppose I, I started a, a repair job I sailed down to um, New Zealand we went across to Australia um, and I stayed in Australia for a year and I did a lot of sort of personal development I saw therapists and I read a lot of books and when I came back I started to train um, in art psychotherapy and um, hypnotherapy, clinical hypnotherapy and other things um, and really just began that experience, that um, search to understand you know who I was and how I had become quite fragmented but you know the journey is of course an ongoing one even this weekend I'm going on a soul retrieval course for three days um, to retrieve parts of the the soul or the the dissociated parts of self. But I've done a lot of work on this over the years. Um, as I said, you know, becoming becoming a therapist is one way where you can see it on other people, but also you know you you do end up doing a lot on yourself. Absolutely, but I think there's so many therapists like just like yourself that we are wounded healers, really, aren't we? Mm, absolutely, absolutely, and. Uh, you know, I love that Khalil Gibran um, quote that our joy is only as deep as the sorrow that is gouged out of our soul. Like the rain falling on a on a log, you know, it, the rain falls into those crevices, those bits that have been dug out of us. 
and gets held there. And I, I do think that there is a sort of marriage between the two, being able to really feel the depths of our sadness, as well as the great, you know, delights of joy. And, you know, it's an ongoing journey, but now I'm, I work as a speaker and I work as a coach, not, so, not really as a therapist, although it informs everything that I do. But as a speaker, my, um, the, the thing I really most passionately want to talk about is standing up for your soul. Mm-hmm. And it's taken... So if you don't do the walk yourself, how can you coach other people to do it? So, yeah. Yeah. I have to stand up for my own soul. Because I know you don't often speak about these incidents that we've spoken about today. So I'm wondering how it does feel to stand up for your seven-year-old, stand up for your 20-year-old who never had that voice, who never even realised it was rape. What does that do to you now to speak publicly about it? It seems like it's an honouring thing. It's honouring and blessing my soul to say these are things that happened, you know. And I do know that, you know, now I, I do know that they're no fault of my own at all. Um, and also, you know, I have found real joy in life. Um, and that's a really important place to get to, I think, before sharing these things in a public forum. Yes, you know, absolutely. I I wouldn't have shared them um, until I knew that, you know, they'd brought me many gifts. Um, and indeed, you know, when I was um, 29 or 30, I became pregnant, looking forward to having a baby. Um, and at 22 weeks, we went to the scan and I lost the baby. And I was working in the field of uh, childbirth at the time, um, helping women feel empowered in the childbirth process, you know, overcome previous traumas and to feel really confident. And so when I lost that baby, that was a very, very dark time in my life. And it was almost like I'd had the experience when I was in Fiji in Australia, which was my sort of my first um, I suppose, big healing experience. And then this was a sort of second category of it because when that happened to me, I lost my home, I lost my relationship. Um, Someone I'd then been with another five years. I lost my, you know, business, my purpose, my meaning. Most of all, I completely lost hope, you know, that I'd ever feel happy again. I didn't see any light. All my expectations for the future had been crashed against the rocks at that time. So how did you climb out of that pit, that dark space? It took a long time to see the light through that. And what I decided to do in the end was I said, I will go to every dark recess of my soul. I will leave no stone unturned. Oh, because like I, a warrior woman. That's well, not an easy thing to do. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want something like this. You know, of course, life can throw it, throw all sorts of horrors at us. But I didn't does. want to, and it does. But I didn't want to find myself in such a dark place again. Um, or at least, if I do now, I I know that you, you're, you're well equipped now with the resources to deal with it. So I guess that's a good place as we're coming to the end here to ask: What advice would you give to someone that finds themselves? lost or they have no self-respect or they struggle with their boundaries or they're unable to 
to label what's the traumas that have happened to them. What would be your biggest learning out of all that you've been through? Don't turn away from your emotions. Turn into yourself and accept them and embrace them. Allow whatever is there to come out and be said. Absolutely. And I always say that the way in is really the way out, isn't it? Mm. It's the running away and all the denying that keeps us trapped, actually, which we don't see. But yeah, learning to turn inwards is, with compassion is such an important message. So I just think that's a brilliant place to end. So Deborah, thank you so much for taking time out today and, and sharing your stories with us. It's been really good to listen to. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Madeline. Unbroken healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. Play Unbroken, the podcast with Madeline Black.